Very good evening to everyone. Just delighted to be with you again tonight. I, I would be remiss if I didn't take just a moment and express some personal remarks uh, to the congregation here. Uh, just so, so grateful for the opportunity to be with you these past couple days. Uh, it's just a, it's a wonderful opportunity to be with those of like precious faith, but especially those you, you really like. Uh, I just love the folks here. Uh, very special congregation, good people, some, some old good friends of mine are here, and I just so appreciate your stand for the truth and your love for the Lord. Uh, I appreciate you holding up the hands of my good friend Kyle. I think a lot of Kyle. He's, a, he's been a good friend for a good long time. I remember he and Holly when they were just dating, and I remember going to their wedding, and I remember just pushing and prodding Kyle a little bit here and there, and he finally says, I'm ready to preach. I said, good. I know the right congregation for you, and I pushed them your all's way, and I appreciate y'all accepting them and taking them and, and uh, working together uh, in this community. It's a, it's a needed work, and I appreciate that. I appreciate all the good food. Uh, I appreciate y'all not trying to overfeed me. Virginia did her best tonight, but I managed to only have one and a half helpings of dessert, but I uh, appreciate very much um, the wonderful meals and the, and the good friendships and, and the good conversations. Uh, just and just to be able to worship God with you, it's just a real, real pleasure. In a previous lesson, matter of fact, it was Sunday afternoon. We explored the question: Is God sexist? We took some time. We looked at that, and uh, from our study, it was obvious that God is not sexist. If you recall that, if you don't, go and listen to it online, and uh, or ask somebody who was here. But many attempt to slander God by by actually manipulating his own word, by manipulating the Bible. In fact, it's very clear from Scripture that God loves men and women equally, yet he assigns them to different roles. We talked about that Sunday afternoon. And if you recall in that lesson, I used a quote, and it's a quote that I really happen to dislike, but I'm going to use it again. It's a quote by Richard Dawkins. He's an atheist and uh, not a very nice fellow on the lines of, Respect towards God, but in his book, The God Delusion, he has a quote, and he says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it. He's a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now that's a mouthful. And that's what a mouthful he has to say about our God. And I dislike this quote very much. And I'm sure you do too. But, but unfortunately, Mr. Dawkins can easily gain the ear of the media and the masses so I would like to examine a couple more charges from this, uh, from this quote tonight and ask the question, is God a genocidal racist? He says that in his quote. You notice he's right there, genocidal, and he's racist. Right up somewhere towards the top, it looks different on the screen, right there. Racist and genocidal. Well, let's examine that. Let's talk about that just a little bit tonight. This is a serious, serious charge that lowers our God to the level of of Hitler or Pol Pot. And if you love the Lord as I do, this should offend you. This should make your skin crawl. But in fairness, I want us to examine the charges that people level against God. And then we're going to examine the scriptures. I believe what we're going to find, as you'll see, is that once again, the circumstances surrounding this question involve perversion and misinterpretation of scripture. 
And if we can clear that away, if we can scoot that off the table and just throw it in the trash can where it belongs, then God's beauty and God's truth of his word will shine through. So let's take a look at the first half. We're going to break this into two parts and ask the question, is God racist? Well, I'm going to give you a very basic definition. This came right off of some internet dictionary out there. A racist is one who believes that a certain human race is superior to any or all others. And that one race or some races have distinctive characteristics determined by hereditary factors. And this endows them with an intrinsic superiority. What this means is that in the eyes of a racist, one who is a racist, that such discrimination against that one group that they find to be inferior is, that discrimination is justified, if not absolutely necessary. They believe so strongly that they're superior and another one is inferior that I must discriminate because I'm just better and they're just lesser. So based on this definition, the question we're going to ask at the top there, is God racist? Some say that he is. And I want to show you some of the evidences that are uh, suggested by these individuals who uphold this idea. They want to suggest that back in the book of Genesis, in that book, way on back in the beginning of your Bible, it tells us that God singled out a man named Abram. Over in Genesis chapter 12, be turning there. One of the more important passages in Old Testament scripture to help us set the stage for the whole scheme of redemption through God's people, how he worked these threefold promise through Abraham. But we see that God chose, he picked and selected, you might say, Abram. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. He says, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now if you take these promises from God and then examine how he favored the children of Israel, the Jewish people, some say that there is absolutely no doubt as you look through history, that God racially discriminates. He shows preference to the Jewish people. As recorded in Scripture, we won't look at every passage, but you can probably maybe think of some instances where you always can think of a time where God had a chosen race, right? Starting here with Abram and all the way down, God always had a chosen race. Surely, surely some say this is proof, absolute proof that God is racist. Well, there's one evidence that they suggest. Another one, I find this one interesting. They will suggest that God is allegedly racist because he has supposedly cursed the African people, specifically cursed them into slavery. And they'll go to Bible verse and try to prove this. In fact, I have actually read some transcripts and some uh, some articles that in years gone by, teachers used to claim that God cursed the descendants of Ham who was one of Noah's sons, God cursed the descendants of Ham because Ham saw uh, went to, saw his father naked after a night of drinking and he went and told his brothers. And because of that, he was cursed. We read over in Genesis chapter 9, turn back just a page or two from where we read just a moment ago. In Genesis chapter 9, we read in verse 25, Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. 
Well, that seems like an open and shut case. Canaan's curse. We see a curse here to, to the descendants of Ham. It was actually, if you notice, it's, uh, since the descendants of Ham, if you do a little reading and research through your Bible, some of the descendants of Ham settled in Africa. Uh, it, it was uh, a logical conclusion then that humans, right, if they're descendants of Ham, those were going to be servants of servants. So the logical conclusion was those ones settled in Africa, that, that humans with more melanin in their skin and their ancestral heritage from the continent of Africa were justified to be enslaved by all others from that verse. So obviously God's racist, no doubt. And both of these charges against God come from plain, old-fashioned, nothing fancy, misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and perversion of Scripture, of the biblical narrative. Let's go about correcting these misinterpretations, if you will. First, let me just point out, God did not curse Ham for what he had done. God did not curse Ham. It was Noah who was speaking in verse 25. If you don't believe me, look at verse 24. Verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, well, that's pretty easy to tear that one down, isn't it? Verse 25, he said that. And then he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. You see, it was Noah who spoke the curse, and he didn't curse Ham. He cursed Ham's son, Canaan. So, I mean, just they're, they're completely wrong on this one, all from the beginning. It was actually a more drastic curse to level against a man's son than it was to level the curse against the father. It, because that curse was against his progeny, against his descendants. His, so, so Noah spoke this curse against his grandson, Canaan. Now, it is true. It is true that at least two sons of Ham... And we see in Genesis chapter 10, we won't take the time to read it. I, I believe, no, I didn't even put it on the wall. You might want to scribble down on that blank uh, side over there. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, you can go and read there, if you, especially if you like to read some tricky names. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, you see that it's true that at least two sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim, settled in Africa. Some translations go ahead and translate those two names into the countries that we know better as Ethiopia and Egypt. And you see puts in there, and you see the, in Canaan, these four sons, two of them absolutely settled in Africa, Egypt and Ethiopia specifically. But my friends, you have to understand, Canaan, the one specified in verse 26, didn't settle in Africa. Canaan settled, as we know, in the land of Canaan known as present-day Israel. We read that right there in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 15. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 15, Canaan's begot Sidon, his firstborn. And you read down through all those names and you read about uh, their descendants and you can read about their area where they lived. Canaan, the children of Israel were going to the land of Canaan. Well, they didn't go down into Ethiopia. They were coming out of Egypt to go to the land of Canaan. So clearly, we understand that this is an absolutely absurd claim that God is racist based upon a complete misinterpretation of passages in Genesis. Isn't it interesting how people will, will just build this huge straw man and there's nothing there. There's no substance. Yet for many years, 
for many years, people justified their own racist views toward black Africans and African Americans upon the twisting of this very passage of Scripture. Well, what about God's view of the Jewish people? They were clearly God's favorite. They were God's people. They were God's chosen ones. Well, it is true that God made a special covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people. And for good reason. See, before creation, God planned to redeem sinful humans, and he would do that by taking on the form of humanity through the birth of Jesus Christ. And so God chose, he identified a people, he gave them his holy word, he gave them the scriptures, God established a sacrificial system with these people that would lead to a final remedy for sin and for death. Over in Matthew chapter 1, it is prophesied, um, well God prophesied in his word that this perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, would be born out of the descendants of Abraham. Again, we won't take the time to read this entire list of names. Uh, I've, I've seen people attempt to read this in worship and they just, they just butcher it. I'm not going to do that. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're reading the first 17 verses. You can pick a few key names out of here. The verse, first verse is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's all we need to see. But you can see Abraham begot Isaac, and you can scoot down and see in verse 6 that David begot Solomon. You can scoot on down to where you get to where Jesus, in verse 16, Jacob and Joseph uh, begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus called the Christ. You see, God's plan to redeem all mankind had to come through some lineage And God chose Abraham, not based on race, but based on faith. The truth of the matter is God did choose Abraham. Yes, yes he did. Abraham was handpicked. He was selected, but on the criteria of faith. In fact, if you were going to make the argument that God is racist based upon his choice of Abraham, that means God prefers Chaldeans, Babylonians, not Jews. Abraham was a Jew, was a Babylonian. He wasn't Jewish. And so it was, Jesus, God made flesh, who came to redeem all who would receive him, both Jew and Gentile, came through the lineage of Abraham. God needed a line in order for all nations to be blessed through Christ Jesus, and that line happened to be chosen to be through Abraham. So God choosing Israel wasn't simply about Israel. It was about God making his name known and God offering salvation to the rest of the world through the lineage of the bloodline of Abraham. Perhaps you're sitting there recalling, as, as I did as I was studying, that God also judged Israel. God judged Israel as he did other nations. You can read over and say, for example, 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 17, God judged them harshly for their sin. And so if he's truly racist, he certainly was consist- wasn't consistently racist. God wasn't playing favorites, not in that sense, not based on race. And God is definitely not racist. Whether Jew or Gentile, we must all give an account to God. So is God racist? Well, the answer is no, absolutely not. And this brings us to the second part of the charge that we want to examine today. Well, God's not racist, and our question, is God a genocidal racist? So let's talk about the genocidal part. Is God genocidal? Well, perhaps 
You're asking, well, what's genocide? And in case you don't know, let me give you a definition. To commit genocide is to deliberately kill a large racial, political, or cultural group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or nation. Genocide is actually a combined Greek and Latin word, which means race killing. Is what that means, literally. It means to kill, utterly destroy, wipe out a race of people. There are many examples of genocide throughout history, some that are maybe a bit more recent uh, to, to our current time. Maybe you would, uh, can recall the, or I've read about the atrocities uh, of Hitler and the Nazi army when they murdered some 6 million Jews and about 5 million or so others, uh, gypsies and Christians, uh, between 1938 and 1945, almost 12 million or so people. There were over 2 million genocidal killings of Cambodians by Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge army between 1975 and 1979. We can read of, uh, in fact, I recall a period of about 111 days when in 1994, about 800,000 Tutsis uh, were in Rwanda were brutally murdered by militia of the Hutu tribe. Maybe you recall that. About the same time, between 1992 and 1995, the Serbs of Bosnia-Herzegovina committed ethnic cleansing by murdering over 300,000 Muslims in Bosnia. These are some more current, recent examples of genocide that humans have perpetrated on one another. Such merciless killings, brutal killings of groups of, of people are repulsive, just disgusting to us. They go against... They go against our sense of morality and, and freedom and justice. So the question is, could God, could God engage in such atrocities against a people or a race of people? Is it possible that he is genocidal? Well, the purported evidence is that people would suggest is that he is indeed genocidal because God did instruct the children of Israel, to completely kill many people, completely wipe out races of people. And this is a very hard um, or solid evidence. When you go and look at passages like Deuteronomy chapter 20, let's turn back to that. Let me show you just a couple verses together. Deuteronomy chapter 20. And we can read in just verse 17, but you shall utterly destroy... That means not ones left. Utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Not just one race, but there's several mentioned here. God commanded to go kill these races of people. Wipe them out. You can read over in Joshua chapter 10 if you want to turn just a few pages over that way to the next book. Joshua chapter 10 You can read in verse 40, a very similar passage. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, and the south, and the lowland, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And these are just two verses. There's many examples of God saying, go utterly destroy, wipe out, kill every man, woman, child, and animal of these people. And because of passages like these, people such as atheist Christopher Hitchens have accused God of genocide by saying that the Canaanites were pitilessly driven out of their homes to make room for the ungrateful and mutinous children of Israel. Now, I will concede that from one point of view, 
He's absolutely right. If you look at this a certain way, if you fail to seek a true understanding, that you, it does certainly appear that Jehovah God is a merciless deity that in anger just wipes out entire races of people. But is that truly the case? I think to understand this question and answer it, we have to look at God's motivation. Why did God say go kill these people? First, let's establish that God, that any killing in the Old Testament, any killing by God that he commanded was not genocide. It just certainly wasn't. Uh, He was motivated by moral concerns, not by racial or ethnic issues. Not concerns of race. Genocide simply is not within God's nature. If we want to look at some passages together, we have a few extra minutes tonight. Let's take a look at just a few verses together and see the nature of God. He's charged to be a genocidal racist. Well, let's let's take a look. Let's look at Psalm 103. Just look at one verse in this psalm. Psalm 103 in verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy. I doubt very seriously that that, those words could have been used to describe Adolf Hitler. God is merciful and loving and patient. Turning over Psalm 145, we read over here about God's nature and that he is holy and God is righteous. Psalm 145, verse 17. Plain it says, the Lord is righteous. In all his ways, gracious in all his works. Well, if we're going to include his ways and his works, the commanded killings of the Hivites and the Paris, the Paris, all those guys, I can't even say all their names, the Canaanites, the Amorites, well, that must have certainly been righteous and gracious because God is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his works. Psalm 119 and verse 137. Just turning back a couple pages. In Psalm 119 and verse 137, Righteous you are, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. God is fair. God is just. And then one more in Psalm 96. Psalm 96 and verse 13. There is no 13, is there? Yeah, there it is, right there. My Bible is one that splices it in. 12 and 13, let the field be joyful and all that is in it, that all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with just anger and violence and genocidal wrath. No, he'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. This is who God is. And so this creates something of a conundrum when we think about what genocide is, the types of people who would commit genocide like Hitler and Stalin and, and, and Mao Zedong and, and, and all these, right? When we think about them, well, does that sound like the same type? Well, essentially, it is not in God's nature to be unjust, as we've seen clearly from these passages of Scripture, and therefore it's not in God's nature to be genocidal because all genocide is unjust. There is no justification for eliminating people based upon bloodlines or ethnic or racial barriers and boundaries. God could not be a perfect and loving God without equally being a just God, though. We've read that. God is just. God is fair. And so we have to sort this out. 
God is a, he is a God who, who is, is perfect and loving, with, and, and, and equally, he's a just God who judges perfectly. He cannot look. Because of his nature, God cannot look the other way when wickedness is committed and, and, and to, be, to be still uh, when, when wicked and evil is being done. That's, just not, that's not according to his nature, nature either. There's a passage or a quote from theologian J.I. Packer. He says it this way. He kind of helps us to see the point clearly. He says, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who puts no distinctions between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and the Stalins, if we dare use names, and his own saints be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be imperfection in God. Not a perfection, but not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. We have to understand God judges rightly because he is perfect. God is holy. God is loving. For God to act differently would make him less than God. So to complete our understanding on this subject, we must determine why then God commanded that an entire people and nations and races be destroyed. So let's ask, what are God's reasons? Well, the reasons are quite simple, actually. Moses told the children of Israel why God commanded the destruction of the native peoples of the promised land back in Deuteronomy chapter 9. If you'd be so kind as to turn back there, it's one of just the last couple passages we're going to look at. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, we just want to read one verse here. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5. Let's just start in verse 4. Do you not think, do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see it? What's God's reason? It says here that ridding the land of the Canaanites... That, uh, reading that land that was promised to Abraham, it wasn't because of any righteousness, anything that the children of Israel did. So that's certainly not the reason. God's certainly not showing preference to them for their race. No, he did this because these people were wicked. The Canaanites, the, the Amorites, and these people, this land was to go to, the, the, to, to Abraham as God promised, not because of the Israelites' righteousness, but because of his promise to Abraham, and the people were driven out because of their wickedness. Just plain and simple. The people who lived in the land of Canaan, these ones who, 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 who critics of the Bible will say that God, used to prove that God is, is a genocidal maniac or something such as this, you have to understand that these Canaanites were idolaters. And that's about the best thing they did. They were also, they engaged in incest, they engaged in temple prostitution, and adultery, uh, and homosexuality, and bestiality. They molested children, they sacrificed children as live burnt offerings to their god Molech. They were a depraved people. And as depraved as they were, as wicked as these people were, you know what's so amazing to me? This genocidal racist god, as people will say, this same God was patient 
and extended mercy to the Canaanites, even in their despicable sin. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16 says, But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What that tells you is that God was patient for 400 years with these wicked people, giving them opportunity and time, showing his patience and his long-suffering and his mercy, Psalm 103 and verse 8. God had nothing against them as a people, as a race, but he did take issue with their depraved and evil behavior. Even so, even with that, even when it came time to destroy and wipe them out for their wickedness, God was still willing to save those within Canaan who were righteous. You remember the story of Rahab, right? When she, she let, uh, let the, hid the, uh, the spies and helped them out, and she was told to keep that crimson cord because that was going to save her and identify her house. She was saved because she was a righteous individual. She found herself ultimately in the lineage of King David which put herself in the lineage of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. My friends, God does eventually bring judgment upon all that are unrepentant of their sin. And the people of Canaan were no different. This does not make God a genocidal God. It doesn't make him merciless. It doesn't make him brutal and cruel. It simply reflects his holy justice and righteous judgment. So is God genocidal? Well, the answer is clear. No, he's not genocidal. As I study with people and have conversations with folks in different circumstances, one of the, one of the most common objections and concerns, you might say, that people have against God is the prevalence of evil in the world. You hear people say, well, what, if, if God is so good and God is so holy, why doesn't he stop all the evil? Why doesn't God stop all the, the suffering and the murders and the brutality and the sin and the abuse? Why doesn't he stop that? First of all, he will. That's a promise. He will stop it one day. You understand when he stops that, that's the stop. That's the end, right? Then comes the judgment. And yet when God does act in this life, in this time, when he does act to stop such evil as things like this, as with the judgment of the Canaanites, people say, whoa, God's just too harsh. So he's not harsh enough, but he's too harsh. Which is it? My friends, if a holy, righteous, all-knowing God really exists, wouldn't we expect him to measure out judgment to evildoers? To those who reject him and reject his standards and reject his law? Even if we can't fully understand why he had peoples like the Canaanites Utterly destroyed, which I think we can. But even if we can't, we can be confident that God has good reasons. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 tells us that God is God, and we are not. For my thoughts, he says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than their so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many do, and we may struggle at times understanding God and his methods of justice and judgment. But my friends, by faith, we must acknowledge him as the awesome and holy God that he is. And we must give thanks for his wonderful grace and mercy. I think when I stop and consider the people like the Canaanites, 
I'm reminded I don't want to fall in the hands of an angry God. I don't want to find myself there with his full wrath and his judgment. I want to make sure that I am a beneficiary of his grace and his mercy. I, I, I like this slide. Grace is what God gives us when we don't deserve. And mercy is when God gives us what we do deserve. Think about that a little bit. If you, we deserve death. We don't deserve the blood of Jesus Christ. But he shed it. He gave his life for us. And that's what we're going to sing. I gave my life for thee. You know, when you think about God requiring, calling for, commanding the merciless killing of innocent people. I can only think of one time God required the death of an innocent person. That was his son on the cross. And that was necessary. His perfect blood, Matthew 26, 20, it was shed for the remission of sins. It was necessary so that you and I could have a hope of heaven. That's grace. That's mercy. He shed his blood for the remission of sins. And we are told in Acts 2 and verse 38 to be baptized for the remission of sins. You know what that tells me? You take those two verses together. His blood shed for the remission of sins. We're baptized for the remission of sins. So that puts baptism and blood together somehow, doesn't it? And so it's in the waters of baptism is where we contact the blood of Christ. It's often said that baptism is where the grace of God meets the obedience of man. And sin is washed away. The blood is applied. Jesus gave his life for you and he gave his life for me. And that's what we're going to sing right now. The precious blood that Jesus shed. That we might be ransomed, redeemed, bought back from the dead. Dead in our sins, dead in darkness, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can have a new life. We can have a redeemed life. We can have a hope-filled, sanctified life. We can take a benefit of, of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and God Almighty. But we have to take advantage of that. We have to come to Christ. We have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And believing that, we must be willing to confess our faith before mankind. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you're willing to come to the front here and say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that's what confession is. We confess that. And we're willing to repent of our sinful ways. Whatever that is, whether you're engaged in in the sin of gossip or adultery or or, or pornography or addictions or or just good old-fashioned lying and stubbornness and independence from God, you turn away from that and you turn back to the Lord. Repent. That's what he always says. Repent, repent. You look at all the churches there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Repent, turn back, repent before I remove your lampstand. My friends, we have to understand if we'll repent... Having believed and confessed, if we'll repent, then we can be immersed in water. Water is prepared right behind me here. You can be immersed this evening and take advantage of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the remission of sins, the remission of your sins. He gave his life for you. Will you give your life to him? If you will, make your way down to the front. Right now, as together we stand to sing.